Chapter Sixteen of the Big Time by Fritz Leiber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Savage. Chapter Sixteen. Familiar with infinite universe sheafs and open-ended postulate systems, the notion that everything is possible, and I mean everything, and everything has happened, everything. Heinlein. The Possibility Binders. An hour later I was nursing a weak highball and a black eye in the sleepy time darkness on the couch farthest from the piano, half watching the highlighted party going on around it and the bar, while the place waited for rendezvous with Egypt and the Battle of Alexandria. Sid had swept all our outstanding problems into one big bundle, and since his hand held the joker of the minor maintainer, he had settled them all as high-handedly as if they'd been those of a bunch of schoolkids. It amounted to this. We'd been introverted when most of the damning things had happened, so presumably only we knew about them, and we were all in so deep, one way or another, that we'd all have to keep quiet to protect our delicate complexions. Well, Eric's triggering the bomb did balance rather neatly Bruce's incitement to mutiny, and there was Doc's drinking, while everybody who had declared for the peace message had something to hide. Mark and Cabby I felt inclined to trust anywhere, Maud for sure, and Eric in this particular matter, damn him. Illy I didn't feel at all easy about, but I told myself there always has to be a fly in the ointment, a darn big one this time, and furry. Sid didn't mention his own dirty linen, but we knew he'd flopped badly as boss of the place, and only recouped himself by that last-minute flimflam. Remembering Sid's trick made me think for a moment about the real spiders. Just before I'd snuck out of surgery, I'd had a vivid picture of what they must look like, but now I couldn't get it again. It depressed me, not being able to remember. Oh, I probably just imagined I'd had a picture, like a hophead on a Secret of the Universe kick. Me ever find out anything about the spiders? Except for nervous notions like I'd had during the recent fracas? What a laugh! The funniest thing, ha-ha, was that I had ended up the least trusted person— Sid wouldn't give me time to explain how I'd deduced what had happened to the maintainer, and even when Lily spoke up and admitted hiding it, she acted so bored I don't think everybody believed her, although she did spill the realistic detail that she hadn't used partial inversion on the glove. She'd just turned it inside out to make it a right, and then done a full inversion to get the lining back inside. I tried to get Doc to confirm that he'd reasoned the thing out the same way I had, but he said he'd been blacked out the whole time, except during the first part of the hunt, and he didn't remember having any bright ideas at all. Right now he was having Maud explain to him twice, in detail, everything that had happened. I decided it was going to take a little more work before my reputation as a great detective was established. I looked over the edge of the couch, and just made out in the gloom one of Bruce's black gloves. It must have been kicked there. I fished it up. It was the right-hand one. My big clue, and was I sick of it. Got mittens. God forbid. I slung it away, and like a lurking octopus, Illy shot up a tentacle from the next couch, where I hadn't known he was resting, and snatched the glove like it was a morsel of underwater garbage. These E.T.'s can seem pretty shuddery non-human at times. I thought of what a cold-blooded, skin-saving louse Illy had been, and about Sid and his easy suspicions, and Eric and my black eye, and how, as usual, I'd got left alone in the end. My men. Bruce had explained about being an ATAC. 
Like a lot of us, he'd had several widely different jobs during his first weeks in the change world, and one of them had been a secretary to a group of the minor atomics boys from the Manhattan Project Earth satellite days. I gathered he'd also absorbed some of his bothersome ideas from them. I hadn't quite decided yet what species of heroic heel he belonged to, but he was thick with Mark and Eric again. Everybody's men. Sid didn't have to argue with anybody. All the wild compulsions and mighty resolves were dead now, anyway until they'd had a good long rest. I sure could use one myself, I knew. The party at the piano was getting wilder. Lily had been dancing the black bottom on top of it, and now she jumped down into Sid's and Sevensee's arms, taking a long time about it. She'd been drinking a lot, and her little gray dress looked about as innocent on her as diapers would on Nell Gwyn. She continued her dance, distributing her marks of favor equally between Sid, Eric, and the satyr. Beau didn't mind a bit, but serenely pounded out Tonight's the Night, which she'd practically shouted to him not two minutes ago. I was glad to be out of the party. Who can compete with a highly experienced, utterly disillusioned seventeen-year-old really throwing herself away for the first time? Something touched my hand. Illy had stretched a tentacle into a furry wire to return me the black glove, although he ought to have known I didn't want it. I pushed it away, privately calling Illy a washed-out moronic tarantula, and right away I felt a little guilty. What right had I to be critical of Illy? Would my own character have shown to advantage if I'd been locked in with eleven octopoids a billion years away? For that matter, where did I get off being critical of anyone? Still, I was glad to be out of the party though I kept on watching it. Bruce was drinking alone at the bar. Once Sid had gone over to him, and they'd had one together, and I'd heard Bruce reciting from Rupert Brooke those deliberately corny lines, "'For England's the one land I know, where men with splendid hearts may go, and Cambridgeshire of all England, the shire for men who understand.' And I'd remembered that Brooke, too, had died young in World War I, and my ideas had got fuzzy." But mostly, Bruce was just calmly drinking by himself. Every once in a while, Lily would look at him and stop dead in her dancing and laugh. I'd figured out this Bruce-Lily-Eric business as well as I cared to. Lily had wanted the nest with all her heart, and nothing else would satisfy her. And now she'd go to hell her own way and probably die of Bright's disease for a third time in the change world. Bruce hadn't wanted the nest, or Lily, as much as he wanted the change world and the chances it gave for soldierly cavorting and poetic drunks. Lily's seed wasn't his idea of healing the cosmos. Maybe he'd make a real mutiny some day, but more likely he'd stick to barroom epics. His and Lily's infatuation wouldn't die completely, no matter how rancid it looked right now. The real love angle might go, but change would magnify the romance angle, and it might seem to them like a big thing of a sort if they met again. Eric had his camarade, shaped to suit him, who'd had the guts and cleverness to disarm the bomb he'd had the guts to trigger. You have to hand it to Eric for having the nerve to put us all in a situation where we'd have to find the maintainer or fry, but I don't know anything disgusting enough to hand to him. I had tried a while back. I'd gone up behind him and said, "'Hey, how's my wicked little commandant? Forgotten your unso weiter?' And as he turned, I clawed my nails and slammed him across the cheek. That's how I got the black eye. Maud wanted to put an electronic leech on it, but I took the old handkerchief and ice water. Well, at any rate, Eric had his scratches to match Bruce's. Not as deep, but four of them, and I told myself maybe they'd get infected. I hadn't washed my hands since the hunt.' Not that Eric doesn't love scars. 
Mark was the one who helped me up after Eric knocked me down. "'You got any omnias for that?' I snapped at him. "'For what?' Mark asked. "'Oh, for everything that's been happening to us,' I told him disgustedly. He seemed to actually think for a moment, and then he said, "'Omnia mutantur nihil interit.' "'Meaning?' I asked him. He said, "'All things change, but nothing is really lost.' It would be a wonderful philosophy to stand with against the change winds. Also damn silly. I wondered if Mark really believed it. I wished I could. Sometimes I come close to thinking it's a lot of baloney trying to be any decent kind of demon, even a good entertainer. Then I tell myself, that's life, Greta. You've got to love through it somehow. But there are times when some of these kookies are not too easy to love. Something brushed the palm of my hand again. It was Illy's tentacle, with the tendrils of the tip speared out like a little brush. I started to pull my hand away, but then I realized the loon was simply lonely. I surrendered my hand to the patterned gossamer pressures of feather talk. Right away I got the words, "'Feeling lonely, Greta girl?' It almost floored me, I tell you. Here I was, understanding feather talk, which I just didn't, and I was understanding it in English, which didn't make any sense at all. For a second, I thought Illy must have spoken, but I knew he hadn't, and for a couple more seconds, I thought he was working telepathy on me, using the feather talk as cues. Then I tumbled to what was happening. He was playing English on my palm, like on the keyboard of his squeak-box, and since I could play English on a squeak-box myself, my mind translated automatically. Realizing this almost gave my mind stage fright, but I was too fagged to be hocused by self-consciousness. I just lay back and let the thoughts come through. It's good to have someone to talk to, even an underweight octopus, and without the squeaks, Illy didn't sound so silly. His phrasing was soberer. "'Feeling sad, Greta girl, because you'll never understand what's happening to us all,' Illy asked me. "'Because you'll never be anything but a shadow fighting shadows, and trying to love shadows in between the battles. It's time you understood we're not really fighting a war at all.' although it looks that way, but going through a kind of evolution, though not exactly the kind Eric had in mind. Your Terran thought has a word for it, and a theory for it, a theory that recurs on many worlds. It's about the four orders of life—plants, animals, men, and demons. Plants are energy-binders. They can't move through space or time, but they can clutch energy and transform it. Animals are space-binders. They can move through space. Man, Terran or E.T., Lunan or non-Lunan, is a time-binder. He has memory. Demons are the fourth order of evolution, possibility-binders. They can make all of what might be part of what is, and that is their evolutionary function. Resurrection is like the metamorphosis of a caterpillar into a butterfly. A third-order being breaks out of the chrysalis of its lifeline into a fourth-order life. The leap from the ripped cocoon of an unchanging reality is like the first animal's leap when he ceases to be a plant, and the change world is the core of meaning behind the many myths of immortality. All evolution looks like a war at first—octopoids against monopoids, mammals against reptiles—and it has a necessary dialectic. There must be the thesis—we call it snake—and the antithesis—spider before there can be the ultimate synthesis, when all possibilities are fully realized in one ultimate universe. The change war isn't the blind destruction, it seems. 
Remember that the serpent is your symbol of wisdom, and the spider your sign for patience. The two names are rightly frightening to you, for all high existence is a mixture of horror and delight. And don't be surprised, Greta girl, at the range of my words and thoughts. In a way, I've had a billion years to study Terra and learn her languages and myths. Who are the real spiders and snakes, meaning who were the first possibility binders? Who was Adam, Greta girl? Who was Cain? Who were Eve and Lilith? In binding all possibility, the demons also bind the mental with the material. All fourth-order beings live inside and outside all minds, throughout the whole cosmos. Even this place is, after its fashion, a giant brain. Its floor is the brain-pan, the boundary of the void is the cortex of grey matter. Yes, even the major and minor maintainers are analogues of the pineal and pituitary glands, which in some form sustain all nervous systems. There's the real picture, Greta girl. The feather talk faded out, and Illy's tendril tips merged into a soft pad on which I fingered. Thanks, Daddy Longlegs. Chewing over in my mind what Illy had just told me, I looked back at the gang around the piano. The party seemed to be breaking up. At least some of them were chopping away at it. Sid had gone to the control divan and was getting set to tune in Egypt. Mark and Cabby were there with him, all bursting with eagerness and the vision of tanks on ranks of mounted zombie bowmen going up in a mushroom cloud. I thought of what Illy had told me, and I managed to smile. Seems we've got to win and lose all the battles, every which way. Mark had just put on his Parthian costume, groaning cheerfully, trousers again, and was striding around under a hat like a fur-lined ice-cream cone, with the sleeves of his metal-stuffed candies flapping over his hands. He waved a short sword with a heart-shaped guard at Bruce and Eric, and told them to get a move on. Cabby was going along on the operation wearing the old woman disguise intended for Benson Carter. I got a half-hearted kick out of knowing she was going to have to cover that chest and hobble. Bruce and Eric weren't taking orders from Mark just yet. Eric went over and said something to Bruce at the bar, and Bruce got down and went over with Eric to the piano, and Eric tapped Bo on the shoulder and leaned over and said something to him, and Bo nodded and yanked Limehouse Blues to a fast close and started another piece, something slow and nostalgic. Eric and Bruce waved to Mark and smiled, as if to show him that whether he came over and stood with them or not, the legate and the lieutenant and the commandant were very much together. And while Sevensee hugged Lily with a simple enthusiasm that made me wonder why I've wasted so much imagination on genetic treatments for him, Eric and Bruce sang, To the Legion of the Lost Ones, to the Cohort of the Damned, to our brothers in the tunnels outside time, sing three change-resistant zombies raised from death and robot-crammed, and commandos of the spiders, here's to crime. We're three blind mice on the wrong time-track. Hush, hush, hush. We've lost our now and we'll never get back. Hush, hush, hush. Change commandos out on the spree, damned through all possibility. Ghost-girls think kindly on such as we. Hush, hush, hush. While they were singing, I looked down at my charcoal skirt, and over at Maud and Lily, and I thought, Three gray hustlers for three black hussars. That's our speed. Well, I'd never thought of myself as a high-speed job, winning all the races. I wouldn't feel comfortable that way. Come to think of it, we've got to lose and win all the races in the long run, the way the course is laid out. I fingered to Illy, That's the picture, all right, Spider-Boy.
End of chapter 16. End of the Big Time by Fritz Leiber.